0: Hello everyone, welcome to Coop Jester, where we ask the big question, what should I do with my life? Enjoy. Hi, it's Dustin from Coop Chester. Today I chat with Rob Thompson, and Rob tells a story about a little adventure he had on a bike, on a mountain, called Everesting. He breaks down how he approached this challenge and also the obstacles he had to overcome on the way, and also on the day. He sounded like a seasoned professional looking back on his career. From the moment when cycling first captured his imagination as a kid, and how it continues to play a big part in his life up to today. So here's Rob, thanks for listening, enjoy. Good morning Rob, thank you for being here. Welcome to Jester.
1: Thank you for having me Dustin, it's been a long time.
0: It has been. And it's so great to see you again. And the reason that I invited you on or wanted you to be on is that you did something pretty remarkable in terms of an athletic endeavor back in June. You did what is quickly becoming a well-known thing called Everesting in the athletic community and the cycling community. But it was you and a bike and a hill on what I hope was a pleasant day in June. So for the people that don't know, what is Everesting? Everesting basically
1: in a nutshell is ride the elevation of Mount Everest in one ride. And that is 8,848 meters of elevation. Doesn't matter how what kind of distance you're gonna do that in. You can, you can do it in um, the longest distance possible with a small gradient, or you can do it on shorter distance with a much deeper gradient. That is all up to you. Trick is
0: 8,848 meters, one ride. And I did a little bit of cheeky research here. I looked at World Atlas and Nepal actually has an average elevation of 10,700 feet. So compared to the guys who are actually climbing Everest, you got them beat by at least 11,000 vertical feet. Wow. Wow. That
1: makes me feel a little bit better and uh, would have helped me with the recovery immediately afterwards, having known (laughs) that. (laughs) Uh,
0: What were your stats from the day? And I know you know them.
1: Off the top of my head, you know, and I do refer back to the official Everesting stats that they send you every other day to give myself a little pat on the back. The ride ended out at uh, 269 kilometers and a total elevation gain of 9,300 meters. So I went a little bit uh, beyond the 8848, and there's a little bit of a reason for this. You know, the folklore of the people that had done this before me in my circles. Sometimes your Garmin or your, your bicycle computer, your GPS can be a little bit inaccurate. So heaven forbid you get through 8,000 meters and your Garmin uh, fails to work accurately, or, and you end up a little bit short. So the idea was to do a percentage over. And for me on my segment, I knew how many extra laps I was going to do. But it turns out that uh, just in case there was going to be some discrepancy, that I was almost 500 meters of elevation over the target.
0: You just padded your stats,
1: really? I just padded the stats, yes. And out of my two other friends that I know that have done this on my cycling club, uh, it makes me feel good that I have the most elevation.
0: Oh, fantastic. Just to give a little bit of context about why it is so remarkable of what, what you did, is that a monster day, in terms of climbing for most rides, would be, say, 10,000 feet. And even the big days in the Grand Tours, like your Tour de France, your Giro d'Italia's, a big day in the mountains is going to be around 10,000, maybe twelve or 14,000 vertical feet. So you're doing at least twice that in a yes. day. Doing
1: the Imperial uh, versus metric conversion, that 8,848 meters is just
0: shy of 30,000 feet. You didn't have a finish line. It's not a race. It's just really, it's you and a bike and a hill. How did that motivate you to do this?
1: Yeah, and uh, that's a great question. Ironically, not having the finish line per se, even though there is that 8,848 meters um, is kind of your finish line. But that's why I wanted to take this uh, challenge on. I'm a little bit older now as I'm, you know, approaching my latter 40s here. I'm not competitive with speed so much anymore, but competing is still very, very important to me. And taking on big goals, which I know are going to be definitely challenging for myself, is definitely something I still want to do. So finding an event that A, I can compete then compete against myself as well, all while in the comforts of how to say, I guess, the COVID restrictions. This just made nothing but sense uh, to do because it was uh, it's an individual goal. It didn't require spectators, um, other competitors and those kinds of things. So it just kind of fit into this wheelhouse. Also, Dustin, you'll remember for when we knew each other way back when um, I wasn't much of a hill climber on a bicycle, you know, I could say I was a little bit of a heavier yes. rider. So the fact that I was going to take on Everesting on the hills in Vancouver was just something that I just 20 years ago, there's no way that I would even conceive of doing all the drive that I needed was to do this for me. Because I've had either been telling myself or have had other people tell me most of my cycling career that I could not climb hills
0: you didn't need to hang on to a group to get over a climb to take part in the sprint finish. It was just grinding it out and to grind it was dustin. I was out
1: there for sixteen hours, thirteen of that was the riding time there There's a good solid period of four to five hours there in the afternoon that I don't remember. It's just like a blur. So that means you're just in the hypnotic rhythm of climbing, descending, climbing, descending to the point where I've had some friends that come up. Hey, we had this great conversation on Everesting and I will turn to them and go, you were there? I don't even remember you there because you just get into this zone and the body just takes over. It understands the job that it needs to do and it does it. So my mind was able to detach, float away, think about a variety of other things. I passed a good four to five hours without even
0: being present. That was an amazing experience as close to out of body that I think I'll ever get. So what are the rules? Can you take breaks? Can you change clothes? Those kind of things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the real only rule is, is, of course, hitting hitting that distance on an approved segment. So I had to take the segment, meaning what is that route that I'm going to do to achieve this? Because, of course, there's no Everest-sized Mountains in Vancouver. Um, so it's going to be a, a repeat of a, of a smaller right. hill, something you're going to do over and over and over again. So you have to pick that segment and have it pre-approved by the Everesting Society. They do have some detailed minor rules that go into that segment. There can't be a downhill lead up into the uphill where you can get momentum. And kind of cheat on the first few meters. So it kind of has to be a consistent climb, maybe followed by the descent and then that consistent climb again. It can't be a climb, minor descent, climb, minor descent. So you are truly replicating the climb of Everest and not, you know, having a crutch due to the um, topography of your route. Other than that, there are no rules. You have to complete it in the 24 hours. You can take your breaks, as many as you want. As I just outlined, I took me 16 hours to complete, but 13 hours to ride. That three hours was spent taking a break, eating some real food, socializing with the people that came out to support me. That became very, very key to my success
0: down the road, which was a big shock to me. So you mentioned your people there. Were you allowed a team of Sherpas or how did your support group go for this challenge?
1: Oh, amazing. Another, another great question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by just prefacing with the fact that I didn't tell really anybody I was going to be doing this. Part of me was really scared that I would fail. I would have to live with that failure with myself, my teammates, two friends and teammates that had completed this before me. I just didn't want to deal with that mental anguish. I'm going to preface that as well with, I was hit by a car while uh, training to do this in 2020. That was my original goal, was to uh, hit this in August of 2020, but climbing Cyprus, I was hit by a car from behind and suffered some extensive injuries. Since uh, July 2020 to, you know, still kind of finishing off on that rehab today, I needed a goal. I was seeing therapists six days a week for months. They give you some exercises to do at home, stretch at home. I don't know about you. I was always bad at that in my life. So I needed that goal to, so I would just stay on top of my rehabilitation. I put that Everesting on there. That just became that carrot that was being dangled in front of me all the time when I didn't feel like training. I didn't feel like stretching, didn't feel like taking care of my body. I would just think about, wow, okay, Everesting and doing what I needed to do that day to get there. I lost my train of thought.
0: I was asking about your team of Sherpas. Oh, yeah, the team of
1: Sherpas. Uh, What I'm really trying to communicate here, having anybody other than my wife there, like, scared the shit out of me. At the end of the day, if my friends weren't there, I would have failed. As I was coming up to the day, I realized that uh, I needed some support with some people handing me some water bottles or food while I was on the course. So I opened it up to a couple of my close friends who are very strong riders Um, some who actually gave me some training tips, you know, for the winter going into it. And my really good friend deserves a shout out here, uh, Kelly Jablonski. He asked me if it would be okay to put it out to the group of our close friends who ride together. Yeah. And I said, okay, this was about a week going into it. I was warming up to the fact that, you know what, it's going to be okay to have a couple wheels to sit on. And it turned out to be of this segment that I did. It was 105 laps up Simon Fraser. And I believe I did 101 of them with at least one other person. I couldn't have finished it without those people. Those people became more and more important. Somebody laughed and reminded me after the fact that they were talking to me. And apparently I said to them, hey, I don't want to be rude, but I'm not going to talk anymore. I don't remember saying that. Sometimes I had some headphones in, sometimes I didn't. But I really enjoyed just having my friends around me talking and telling jokes. And I would find myself laughing at their jokes just being part of the social aspect. I mentioned earlier about four to five hours just disappearing. That's where some of that time disappeared to just like listening to my friends. You know, if I had to live and be present for those five hours, maybe that I missed, maybe I wouldn't finished.
0: So sometimes you really, really do need a little help from your friends. A lot of it is that people just want to support others in their goals and just share in that moment they're not looking for anything they're just like oh rob needs a domestique yeah i could do that like sure i'll show up for a few hours he needs a power bar yeah funny kelly called himself the sherpa these guys were carrying
1: my stuff pacing me because sometimes you want to break up the rhythm and you go chase a rider down in front of you or whatever and kelly was very good in my ear just going hey settle in and can keep it consistent another good friend uh, named travis Travis was there at 5.30 in the morning with me. He rode for two hours or so in the morning. He came back a couple times uh, during the day, once with his wife, even to ride with me. Travis and another good friend, Timmy, were there at 9.30 at night when I finished. These are like friends in my life that I didn't ask them to do that. They just did that. I can mention so many names, Joanne, Rob, Jenna, Andrew Ramlow, guys that I hadn't seen for years. Like if you showed yeah. up, it would be oh, been, oh, Dustin, cool, man. And uh, I'm not sure if you knew, you probably would have shown up. And it was just, man, it's bringing tears to my eyes almost now as it did when I was riding because all these people, I didn't know they were coming. And they were there in their kid riding with me, some of them for four hours. You know, it was great. I also have to take this opportunity to give a special shout out to a BC Transit driver that was going driving drive in one of the buses up to SFU. And he must have passed me a number of times. He would honk every time. He would give me the rock horns, the thumbs up. He apparently asked my support crew down at the bottom of the hill what I was doing. And he just gave the loco sign, you know. But it's just that little honk every once in a while, like from the bus, knowing it was a supportive honk. Powerful
0: stuff. It just really reinforced to me the power of camaraderie and friends. And everybody loves the guy who's doing crazy shit, <laughs> which, you, which you were doing that day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And people just get like really
1: into it. My wife stood out there for 15 hours. 15 hours. My wife stood on the side of a road in the back of a car handing me food. Two or three hours into this, doing, my, you know, the 180 turnaround at the bottom of the hill. And there is my wife and uh, one of her friends there with huge signs that she had made. Like, go Rob, not uh, alley Omi, and Opie. <laughs> um, because, uh, hey, those signs can get you in trouble. And, and I have no idea that my wife made these signs. And here there are people waving signs at the bottom of the road. It just, it made me feel like uh, Tour de France pro, you know, as close as I'm ever going to get.
0: What was the craziest thing you ate that day? We've all been in those long endurance rides. And despite what all the energy bar manufacturers say, how great their bar tastes, (laughs) after about three hours, everything tastes like cardboard. You know, having been a cyclist racer
1: for a long period of time, I've had some experience with nutrition products, gels and bars and those kinds of things. So I knew this was going to be something that I needed to approach for the event. So, you know, believe it or not, I trained on nutrition. Doing 7 days stage racing in Europe, I knew that my ability to take in gels was going to be at a low limit before my body started rejecting them. And then you or you just don't eat. That's the worst thing that you can do in this event uh, is just fail to eat or even miss a, a window of eating. So I knew that I needed to take in 100 grams of carbs every hour. And then for me, it was about training. What was that 100 grams going to look like? Was it going to be gel? Was it going to be granola bar? Was it going to be liquid? Um, So what I determined from that experience racing in Europe was real food is key to me. Yes, some gels here and there because they're easy when you need that quick and you don't feel like eating. But the best thing that I use for fuel, croissants with Nutella and sliced banana. I was looking forward to those and I kept those down at the car. There would be a point like 15 minutes before I was counting down. Not to finish the event, I wanted my Nutella and banana croissant. Craziest thing that I ate during the event actually wasn't that crazy because you had to keep it really simple. So my buddy Kelly was really into these dollar store like coconut cream cookies. They're individually wrapped. They're squishy and soft, super sweet. I would never eat something like that in my real life, but I think I had six of them during Everest. Yeah, but afterwards, can I tell you what I ate afterwards? (laughs) Oh, yes. Tell me what you had after. When I finished, I was after 10 o'clock, so there wasn't a whole lot of options. We went to AMW. I think I had three hamburger combos, the full combos, like with three servings of French fries. I think one of them was even poutine. Had some apple pies in there. Yeah, almost like without taking a breath. Like in hindsight, it's gross that I ate all of that. If I were like went down to Nook or something and had a nice pass to dinner, which I was planning to do if I finished earlier, it would have been wasted on me. I was just trying to get those calories into my face as fast as possible. Oh, it's not
0: classy eating. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. There was nothing classy about it. Tell me about the hill. For those that are unfamiliar with Vancouver, there is... The North Shore Mountains, which are the southern part of the Cascade Range. So we have Cypress, Grouse, and Seymour, all varying climbs. And then we have SFU, which I think forms the fourth climb, if you want to do all those in one day. Absolutely. Yep. They call that the
1: quadruple bypass. They'll usually probably throw the demonstration forest, which is over here on the North Shore uh, as well. So you do get four elevated climbs and then that fifth one crossing the bridge and doing Burnaby Mountain which is okay. where I did the Eversing segment.
0: It has two ways up. And yes. so you did the one from Hastings up the back. It's about 2K to a set of lights. And then you go around the university and then come back down. How did you manage the light? Great question. I didn't. Out of that two
1: kilometers to the lights, I used 1.3 kilometers up. And there is a left turn up Centennial Way that takes you up to the rest on the yep. top of Barnaby Mountain. Um, there is a left dedicated left-hand turning lane there. So I used that as my turnaround up at the top. So I did not have to negotiate that traffic light. Safety was the big, big concern, especially after being hit by a car the year before. My route had a dedicated bike lane. It was well lit.
0: Did Cyprus ever factor in your seam work?
1: yes. My friend Jordy did this first a couple of years ago, and he did do it on Cyprus, which equated to 13 ascents up Cyprus, which is just okay. over 10 kilometer climb. It has some switchbacks, some flatter points on it. So it's about 700 to 800 meters of elevation every ascent. But because of those flat sections on switchbacks, there's a lot of wasted kilometers on the bike. If I did 269 kilometers, Jordy would have had to have done significantly more on Cyprus. As well, you have the flexibility to choose a segment of what works well for you as an athlete. So as I mentioned previous, I haven't always been uh, such a great hill climber, which now results in I don't do well on steep gradients. So Seymour, for example, which has an average gradient of 9 to 10% for the first three kilometers, that would have destroyed me after a few hours. It just would have tapped in too much into my um, glycogen stores. Um, and I just wouldn't have been able to recover. And I would have faded out before, before the goal was reached. I've always excelled on Burnaby Mountain. I knew the gradient, but largely averaged out at 6% was right in my wheelhouse that I can sit and ride at my functional threshold power for the entire ride. And as long as I fed myself, I was going to succeed.
0: Did you have any special gear set up for that day? Like, did you change your cog set in the back just to give you a little extra spin on the way up? Oh, yeah.
1: When I was hit by the vehicle, unfortunately, my bicycle was destroyed. So that left me without a machine to take this on. I received my replacement bicycle three weeks before my event. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to ride it. And I wasn't fully convinced that I was going to be able to with an unproven machine or something that I just was not used to. The technology on it for you bike nerds out there, 12 speed, 12 speed is pretty new. So getting chains, cassettes, and those kinds of things was kind of a challenge. So I kind of used what I could get. So SRAM likes to do things differently. So I had a 1033 and a 5047 on the front, which is very unique. You usually see a 5036. Or you see a yeah. uh, 5239 would be the other,
0: yeah. and the gearing was perfect. What metrics were you watching during the ride? Were you focused on heart rate or power, that kind of thing? And the metric that I stared at the whole time was power. I
1: learned this racing Trans Alps about 10 years ago and getting into power meters. The key training metric for me was functional threshold power or FTP and that is essentially the power number that one can ride at for an hour and sustain it for an hour. Now, all my training is built upon that number, which also correlates into your power to weight ratio. So, how much power can I generate for every kilogram of body weight that I weigh? And I knew if I could stay within a percentage of my FTP, 75 to 80%, I knew I that was my goal. So, on my computer okay. was a giant power number, and laps. can not forget about laps because I was counting yes. down when it was over. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it's great just having that confidence, you know, knowing yep. past experience that if I can stay in that window,
0: everything was going to be good. We have different gauges on whether we're ready to do something. I was talking with some guy on a ride. He did a lot of 24-hour mountain bike rides. Ah, yes. And the way he knew he was ready to do these was if he. still pedaled for six hours in the pitch dark in his basement on a trainer. Was there something that you did that you knew you were ready for it? Yes. I didn't know how to train for something like this, you know, to be honest, other than talking to
1: my friends that had done it previous. So the Everesting Society website, you know, has some guidelines. Hey, some, hey, you're thinking about doing this, you know, maybe, maybe consider these kinds of things. So I knew I had to do the half Everest. So that is climbing about 4,400 meters of elevation. Essentially, once you do that, the body knows that it can take on the workload. So I did that with my friend Kelly, and it had a two-prong effect. It convinced me that my body was ready to go. Dealing with injury rehab and those kinds of things, I was not in a whole lot of pain coming off the bike after five, six hours. But when he told me as we were taking our shoes off, he was like, how would you feel about knowing you have to go do this all over again right now on event day? Being only halfway done, I'd have to do another half. Well, mm-hmm. that almost broke me right there. Wow. All the confidence that I gained from doing the half ever sting that afternoon went went away because I was like, oh, I don't think that I can do that again. And yeah. uh, And it wasn't my body. It was my mind. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could mentally take that on. All the little games you play with yourself in your mind, all the negotiating that you do in your mind. I know you know this, Destin. You play so many games with yourself, and I feel I had played all the games that I could possibly play with myself just to get the half. That was just about three weeks before the event and I knew that it all from there on end, maintaining the train the physical training, but it all had to be my mind. I needed confidence that I could do this. And that's where my friends and having people coming out to the event kind of started to creep in to the conversation for me, you know, with all those races, you know, or who got me through the vape the race was my teammates or maybe some unsuspecting competitors that I snuck behind. The The mental aspect definitely uh, became a much bigger piece of this than I thought.
0: So I can imagine after you finished this ride, you had a moment where you said to yourself, I'm never doing this again. But how soon after did the idea of Everesting Part 2 kick in? <laughs> on the drive home? Yeah, I'm done. Okay, never. No, no, no. Okay, no. yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe I can do this. I think on the ride
1: home, it was, how can I translate this fitness that I have into my cyclocross season coming up this fall, you know, so nice. it was already it was already moving on to the next thing, you know, hey, I'd accomplished this, and it had built this up for me. Now, how can I take this and move it over to the next thing that I want to do? You are absolutely correct. I'm never going to do the everything thing ever again. But you know what it has opened up the door for me at 48 years old to what else can I do? And right.
0: that is a pretty empowering feeling. So how do you feel doing something like this now at you know your mid forties versus say if you were twenty?
1: I don't think I would have appreciated it
0: when I was twenty. That's one of the great things
1: about I think being older is your perspective. It just would have been another thing. I think you know at twenty years old, I, it probably the motivating reasons would have been you know more about doing it for my friends or you know to mm-hmm. prove something to somebody. Um, knowing myself back then, that's largely what it would have been. Whereas doing it at this stage in my life, it was a process. It was a journey. Yeah, maybe it all came out of the the ashes of kind of a joke. The team that I raced for, my good friend Kelly, ordered me the wrong skin suit by accident for our teammate that had Eversted. So Eversting has a gray bar that makes it recognizable. Our team uniform, he had made one for Jordy with a gray bar. He sent that one to me by accident. And I'm like, I can't wear this. I've never, ever did. It's like, I'm sorry I made an error. But then he looked at me, or did I make an error? I'm like, now I got to do it, you know? (laughs) And honestly, like it was a joke between us. But at the same time, I kind of knew at that time it wasn't a joke. So to me, that was just kind of the trigger. Maybe I will. Why? Why? Why don't I do this? I never really gave it a whole lot of thought of what I needed. And that was important to me because... I usually need a big buildup. I need a big reason. I need a big event. I need something, a tangible substance at the other end of something before I can get buy-in. This was something big in my life to take on without that. It has actually reshaped my life, uh, definitely my career in the couple months since then. I'm diving into things without that push, that big motivator and I'm seeing results out of that engagement, improved engagement. It's just I've had some great feedback from uh, resources in my life since opening up after Everesting. It was a just a great experience to dig deep into yourself, strip down yourself and go, hey, you know, the only person that's going to get me through this is me. I, mean, I almost look back in shame that it took me this
0: many years to learn those lessons. Yeah. You led into a nice question there. It's Sometimes our strengths and weaknesses don't really reveal themselves until they're late into something pretty serious. Definitely that weakness was uh, that mental
1: training. Once I got to the halfway mark, I remember stopping for the first time at the car and I look at my wife and I said, I got a 30% chance of finishing. I don't think I can do this. My physical training had come up to that point and it just, it creeped into my head. I got to do this all over again. And I just had all of this doubt. So I actually sat at the car there for, I think, 20 minutes, much longer than I had ever anticipated. Had some food, chatted, and then started out again. The next time I stopped, about 90 minutes later, it was I have a 70% chance of finishing. Then an 80% chance of finishing. Then I'm like, I got this. No problem. Mental was the weakness. Overcoming was uh, the strength. And I've used that word a lot, uh, maybe since the car crash or a car accident getting hit there in 2020. And having my body beaten up. Because I Mm -hmm. felt I had to overcome some injuries. I had to overcome myself. I was my own worst enemy on Everest. That halfway point, I could do it. I knew I could do it. Why Mm -hmm. was my brain saying that I couldn't do it at the halfway point? Because I was in unknown territory. Fear of the unknown. I needed to overcome that. I needed to believe and remember and have confidence in my training. Remember the belief of my friends and my teammates that have seen me do big things. and That believed in me. That's why they were there. I needed to overcome myself. Uh, uh, It's been one of the biggest demons that has probably traveled my whole life. Maybe a reason why, you know, I started a cycling club 20 years ago. I needed to get uh, beyond my own limitations. Getting back on the bike after I felt I couldn't do it anymore, climbed another thousand meters of elevation. That confidence just all started coming back. And once I had that confidence back, I, I started smiling again. I, I'm looking at the photos in hindsight of myself as the hours progressed and the eyes get deeper and deeper into your skull. <laughs> but I can see in the photos that I'm smiling a lot more as the day progressed instead of just being serious about the sporting event. For me, it's like playing hockey and you're winning and you're, you have the wherewithal in the game to enjoy the game. And one of the magical moments I remember is out of that four or five hours of not being present, coming back and going, yes, I have this. The sun setting on some of those laps, Dustin. Then I could look at, this was an epic day, man. It was like a phoenix rising out of these ashes, whereas four, five, six hours before, I thought I was defeated. And now I know I can yeah. take that hard work and almost get through anything. What got you into cycling in the first place? Uh what got me into cycling? Uh, sports Illustrated subscription. I was totally into sports as a kid. 1986, I'm going to say would have been the summer, Tour de France time And there was this guy, Greg LeMond, yeah. racing in the tour. Um, and I just remember looking at the pictures in the magazine, and it would be like the scenery, the epic mountains, the uh, sunflowers, the bright spandex kits, you know, all the fluorescent yellow. It was the 80s, right? Yeah, and just like the whole scene. It was just like un- something like that I had never really seen watching football or hockey. And then I remember also 1986 here in Vancouver, we were lucky enough to have the, the World Fair expo 86 the theme for expo 86 was transportation and i also remember later that summer going to the italian pavilion they had some really cool bikes man <laughs> like concept stuff it was like 12 13 so i didn't really appreciate what bikes they were but since i think you know one of them was used for the hour record back then just think of these crazy concept time trial bikes right Out of all the other cool stuff in there, like Ferraris and stuff like that, I was like into these bicycles. Like That was my first kind of hook into it. Scooped ice cream at Baskin Robbins and saved up my money and I bought my first road bike, I think in 87. I grew up in Richmond, so we'd ride from Richmond to Kitts Beach in Vancouver, about 10 kilometers each way. And that was like a Tour de France stage for me then. I was kind of hooked. But then I moved to the island and then got into mountain bikes. Came back to, yeah, road cycling, probably in the late 90s. When I moved back to Vancouver, that's when I think you and I probably joined forces. You know, I started a cycling club here, but that came really out of the ashes of once getting into the bikes here again, 1998, I want to say, 1999, 2000. You know, I looked up all those cycling clubs. I picked out the cycling club that was close to me in Vancouver. It was one of the most... Unpleasant experiences that I've had in a sporting environment, but uh, it was very aggressive, elitist. I was 25 at the time, and I remember from the club director, who was not much older than me, yelling at me. I had never seen a criterium race before. I uh, drove after work to go to UBC to see the Tuesday Nighter showing up to watch the race and wearing my shirt and tie from work. And then the club director coming up and yelling at me because I wasn't in my kit and I wasn't racing my bike and kind of called me a wimp and all of this kind of stuff. You know, I was like, wow, (laughs) you know, this is what road cycling is all about. And thank goodness it is not. On the weekend rides, I, you know, met some guys that were very much like-minded, didn't have time for the elitistness of this club. We just took that opportunity to form our own. And that whole goal was to make it inclusive because it is such a beautiful sport. You can see what it's all about. Make cycling what you want it to be without having to deal with any of that BS.
0: I like to think we were pretty successful at that for a while anyway. but Because <laughs> that's how we met, was through yeah. CVC or Central Vancouver Cycling. Yeah. And I came in at about, I mountain biked raced when I was a kid, but it wasn't until my late 20s where I Said There might be something here. Let's check it out. So like you, I was searching for a group of guys to ride with and learn from. You were very pleasant and welcoming. And it's like, well, okay, we'll just come out for this ride to see if you fit. You and Ron were there. Ron Lou. and Yeah. You're like, we're going to go do the Ace Ride. And what is the we, Ace Ride? Immediate panic set you? in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd ridden a regular pace, but never anything intense. The ACE ride is, it's about a hundred K rip around Richmond and the airport in Vancouver. You could put race in quotation marks. It's not a race, but it's a race where you're running lights and there's a lot of unsafeness happening. And I was like, oh God, it was pouring rain. I think I got dropped within the first 5K. This is going to be a long day. (laughs) And then at the end, you're like, okay, welcome to the club. I didn't do anything. I imploded, and then it was great. The Ace Ride's really fun, and it was a great way to get introduced to it. Wow, baptism by fire. Many years later, Dustin, I'll take the opportunity to apologize for that. <laughs> Sorry for doing that to you. It was one of the more memorable moments for me. Like, it was right at the beginning. So of course you like remember everything, first time you're kind of riding in a group or a peloton situation and so you have to navigate all those things and then you're also very aware of how good some of those riders are so I do thank you for that experience (laughs) What it must have been,
1: Dustin, uh, why we welcomed you to the club is A, that you know you were a trooper and were willing to come out and take that on. But it's probably because you had that big smile on your face after having a miserable experience. And that, hey, well, you're just like us. Because I'm sure Ron yeah. and I had a miserable time that ride too. I've been dropped so many times on that ride. It is a humbling ride, even if you feel really good. And it's yes. flat, there's no climbing yeah maybe not the safest ride in the world that's awesome that's one of the greatest things about cycling It can be whatever you want and whatever you feel it to be at that given point in time this took me 20 years plus riding bikes to figure that part out it doesn't need to be a minimum 90 you know 1200 kilojoules or else I'm not going to get on the bike it can be a 20 minute spin over to your house Dustin to go have a beer and I'm going to have just as much fun doing that in my cycling career now is keeping it fun there's so many different kinds of bikes out there and so many different kinds of people that ride them. That's what interests me now. Like, I'm really into cyclocross. Cyclocross is crazy, crazy, but it's so much fun. Gravel opens out to our backcountry where there's no cars. I really like that part. I'm really bad at mountain biking, but I try <laughs> and I'll keep trying and I'll keep crashing. That's a lot of fun, especially in the fall, winter time now. And I just love the, the social aspect of cycling, but I also like going out by myself. That introspectness, that quiet meditation. I'm a pretty uh, high-energy guy. You know, you could even argue anxious. But the bike, to me, you know, balances out the mind. It brings peace in my life. It's that physical outlet. I can't talk enough about all of the great things that cycling has brought to me. Hopefully, your listeners can find that thing in their life that brings them so much joy and gives back to them
0: every time you do it. That is a fine way to wrap up. In asking this, I also know that it would have added to the insanity of your Everesting. But if you could have one song on repeat while you did that whole thing, what would it have been? Oh, that would have been crazy. Not only are you doing 100 plus laps, (laughs) but this song is just, you're like, I am not getting out of this loop.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, But I did have this one particular song and I did have it on repeat a couple times. And that's going to be Walking on a Dream by Empire of the Sun. Cool bop, nice beat to it, uplifting. Being a former spin instructor, it has that good RPM cadence to it. It's light poppy. And then Luke Steele, the lead singer of the band, kind of had to go through a reinventing of himself, his image, and his band. And I always related to that, that he kind of came up with something his band, Empire of the Sun, is born out of the ashes of something else. And I think he's a lot happier and more successful as a result. So I take a little piece of that away for myself. Definitely walking on a dream, no doubt about it. And I probably listened to it four times
0: on that ride. Rob, I really want to thank you for doing this. It was, it's awesome to see you again. Let's plan a ride. And it won't be in Richmond this time. I promise. Now you can just go crush my soul on the North Shore.
1: (laughs) Thanks a lot, Dustin.
0: Thanks, Rob. Take care.